All right. Well, good morning. Thank you for being here with us. I'm going to invite you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to John chapter 3. We're going to be looking at what is probably a familiar passage, but nonetheless one that is going to be good to have the text right in front of you. Uh, You may even have some of it memorized, but still it's going to be good to have that right in front of you so we can see exactly what God is going to have for us today in that passage. And so while you're turning there, once you get to John 3, I'm going to have you just Make a bookmark, use your finger, a pen or a pencil, something. And then go ahead and turn all the way back to Numbers 21. That's the fourth book in the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and then Numbers. And when you're in Numbers, we're looking for chapter 21. Don't worry, I'm going to give you a little bit of time to get there. And so leading up to this uh, section in Numbers 21, here's where the Israelites are at, where God's people have been, where they are going. And so what we're going to find is that we see that uh, God's people have been enslaved in Egypt. Uh, They have uh, been let go by Pharaoh, uh, and they have crossed the Red Sea uh, via God's provision. And now they are wandering in the wilderness uh, looking for the promised land. But before they've done that, they've been to Mount Sinai, where they got the covenant, uh, the law from God directly through Moses. And so... They have now received the covenant. They have now also broken the covenant upwards of four times at this point in the book of Numbers. And for some of us, this might sound like our our wildest dream come true. We're out in the middle of nowhere. We're wandering around with people that we know, people that we like. And all we have to do is follow God's leading. Remember, God is leading his people through the wilderness and uh, enjoy the food that he's giving us. And this is like a dream come true. But we find... Israel is not feeling so excited about this. In fact, we find that they're rather grumpy. They're having to get around the nation of Edom, so they've been in the wilderness for a long time. And so that's starting to influence how they act, and we're going to see that in Numbers 21, but we're also going to see that while they've been out there for a while, God has been so faithful in leading them, feeding them, and sustaining them. And so let's pick up in Numbers 21, verses 4 and 5. We'll get the situation set here. It says this, From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. And if you know anything about Israel history, you know that the Red Sea is significant. If you've read Exodus, you know the Red Sea is where they began their journey in the wilderness. And so now after all this time, they are back where they started. They're heading right back towards the Red Sea. And so noticeably they are uh, probably feeling a little bit distraught about that, a little bit worn out, as I think most of us would be, but they go so far as to call God's provided food for them worthless, or if you have the NIV in front of you, it probably says miserable. Uh, And so we see this is, uh, even in where God is being faithful, we see that the people are not excited about it. In fact, they're rebelling from it. And so while God has been faithful, now he is also going to have to discipline his people. And so we get to verse 6. He says this, Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. And if you're 
looking at this as a 21st century reader, you're probably thinking, why would they rebel against God? It doesn't serve them any good. They know he's real. Uh, He is giving them food. He is leading them visibly and actively through the wilderness. It doesn't make much sense, but what we're going to find is that this is, in fact, a pattern for the nation of Israel. This is called a sin cycle. They sin, God restores them, uh, but it's not always an easy pathway around that sin cycle. And so now we see God is, would be perfectly just in ending the story of Scripture here, where God's people have said, we don't want anything to do with what you've given us. We loathe this. God would be perfectly just to end the story there and, and uh, judge Israel and, and wipe them out, and that would be completely fair. But God is merciful here. He's giving something that is undeserved. And so we continue Verses 7 through 9, And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. We have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. And so we see God has been gracious again to his people, even though they've rebelled. And it's the same story that we read in Numbers 21 that you can, you can go ahead and flip back to John chapter 3 now, that we're going to see Jesus using when he's talking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. The people in, in Numbers, they didn't trust in God's ability. They didn't trust in God's authority to sustain them, to provide for them, to save them. And Nicodemus here is going to be having the same issue. He's going to be doubting uh, the ability, the authority that Jesus is, is, is acting with. And that's God's authority. In John chapter 2, we we read that Jesus has been doing uh, different signs. We don't know what they are. They're just uh, general signs. That's all we get. But what we do know is that Nicodemus has seen and noticed these signs, and he has some questions. This leads us to the beginning. Let's pick up in John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus here is is a leader among the Jews. He's of the Sanhedrin, which means he's also a Pharisee. He's, He's the religious and moral authority in Jerusalem. And so we see the leader of uh, the people come to Jesus at night. And in the book of John, we see the, the use of darkness to convey spiritual darkness as well. And so that is an undertone that we need to uh, understand in this situation here. And he's, he's coming to Jesus, and you notice, maybe, he, maybe you notice this, he doesn't actually ask him a question. He gives him a statement. He says, hey, I saw you did these things. And then he kind of waits. <laughs> He's, he's, it's kind of an awkward exchange, but he waits. He doesn't really ask a question. Jesus just is supposed to respond. And, and what Nicodemus is really asking, is, is Jesus a, just a man or is he something more? And if we go back to John chapter 2, the last two verses, are 24 and 25 here, they tell us this, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them, people, because he knew all people. 
and he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And we see that Jesus is going to be using that knowledge here with Nicodemus. He already knows what Nicodemus wants to know. He knows what Nicodemus is there for, what he needs to ask. He knows the heart of the issue. And Nicodemus is really wanting to know, is Jesus the real deal? And so we pick up in John chapter 3, verse 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is, one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again, where the, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And so we're left with this question, how can a man like Nicodemus be the leader of Israel Jesus is describing him, to him the second birth, this rebirth, and Nicodemus is unable to get past the physical sense of that. How can you be born again? You can't go back in the womb, and, and he's right, you can't. That's just not what Jesus is saying here. It's not a physical possibility. And, and so Jesus tells him, unless you're born again, you're not going to see the kingdom of heaven. And in fact, unless you're born again, you're not going to enter the kingdom of God. Is what he says the second time. And so Nicodemus here is struggling to understand this physical reality and understand what Jesus is teaching through it. And he's left with this question. It comes to head right in verse 9, and he's left with one question How can this be? because he's stuck in the physical, but what Jesus is talking about here is a spiritual rebirth. And so we are left with this question for us and for Nicodemus, how can we be born again? How can we enter the kingdom of heaven? How can we enter the kingdom of God? And we pick up in verse 13. 13 through 18 says this, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. 
For everyone who does wicked things and hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And so if you're uh, Nicodemus in this situation, you've been looking to the Old Testament law for your righteousness. You've been seeking to fulfill God's commands to walk obediently, and when you mess up, you've been seeking to fulfill the right sacrifices to secure your righteousness. But what Jesus has just told him is that there is a way into heaven to have eternal life with God. And Jesus has just given him this roadmap for how that works. And all he's left with is this question, how? He's got, I'm sure, so many questions, but all he can utter is, how can this be? And, and while Nicodemus is missing the point that Jesus is teaching to, the spiritual rebirth through belief in the Son of God, we can expect that he's picked up on a couple different things here. We can expect that in verses 14 and 15, we can expect that he remembers the Old Testament story of the serpent in the wilderness. That that serpent was raised up on a pole and whoever looked to that serpent would be saved. And so when the Son of Man must be lifted up in the same way, we can assume that he would understand that reference at the minimum. Maybe not the significance. And here we see that in that story in Numbers that God's people were without hope. They were dying. And God stepped in. He gave them life and he gave them a new hope. And that was provided through God alone. And here, we see the same thing, but it's important to note, even in Old time, Old Testament Israel in Numbers, people actually thought that it was the serpent that saved them. And we can read later uh, that there was actually a cult following that worshipped the bronze serpent. Where God had stepped in and saved the people, the people thought the serpent was what saved them. And that lasted all the way through the reign of Hezekiah until he destroyed the bronze serpent. This story in Numbers 21 of physical restoration for God's people is now being used to point forward to a spiritual restoration for God's people. And so what Jesus is asking us to do here, he's asking us to reimagine how we can be righteous. He's asking us to reimagine how we can have eternal life in the kingdom of God. He's asking us to reimagine how we can... uh, how we're loved by God, how much God loves us. And the point that we come to is it is only through belief in the Son that we can have these things. So we know that we can have eternal life, and Nicodemus can have eternal life in the kingdom of God if we believe in the Son of God and are born again. One more time for you. We can have eternal life in the kingdom of God if we believe in the Son of God and are born again. And this is actually the whole point of the book of John. Uh, If you uh, skip forward to the end of the book of John, John chapter 20, uh, verses 30 and 31, John's telling us the purpose of the book, and he says this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so since Jesus is the Son of God, we read that through the witness of Scripture. 
we know that that is where we can find our salvation. So that causes us to look outside of ourselves, outside of our own righteousness, our own earned righteousness. So we have to look for something else for this salvation, this deliverance. And we know through John chapter 3, through the words directly of Jesus, that eternal life is only available through the Son of God, and that is Jesus. And for some of us here, that's probably what we have professed to believe, and that's a beautiful thing, and we, we have this joyous faith that we know that we stand saved in the name of Jesus. But maybe there's some, some of you here today who, who haven't come to faith in Jesus, who haven't believed in his death on the cross for your sins. And you're looking around at the world outside and you're, you're, you're wondering, why is this so crazy? Why is this so messed up? Why is there so much evil in the world? You want it all to make sense. You want it all to just be okay. And I'm here to tell you that the only way that's going to happen is through faith in Jesus. Because when we have faith in Jesus, he's going to adjust how we see the world. We're going to be able to see the world we live in the way it really is. And we're going to see it with the perspective that Jesus intends us to have on it. We're going to see that we can look forward to an eternity where this evil, this, this sin, this, uh, this pain is no more. And so we know that with Jesus, we have eternal life. We have something to look forward to where everything is going to be at peace, where we are going to be with God. We are made right. And in order for that to have value, we also need to know where do we stand without Jesus. With Jesus, we have life. Without Jesus, where are we? And that's actually where Jesus goes in those last four verses, 18 to 21. And Jesus is going to communicate that the gospel, belief in the Son, is both necessary and it's simple. And he's going to start by telling us that we have a predisposition as humanity. We have a predisposition to loving the darkness to sin, to evil. Our natural tendency is going to uh, be to sin. And Romans 3.23 tells us this, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's all of us, every single one. And, and we have this inherent sin nature. And sometimes we try to hide this. We try to, to, to guise our sin or to change the boundaries of right and wrong. Any way we can disguise it so that we don't have to deal with it that's what we try to do so we can escape the guilt of sin. We'll do anything to escape the guilt of sin. And usually what we do is we have these attempts to, to do better or to be better, to be the best version of ourselves. Uh, but these things aren't able to save us. You'll notice that in Jesus' discussion here in John chapter 3, he never says anything about earning this belief. And in speaking to someone like Nicodemus who's been looking to the law for the fulfillment, for their righteousness, we have to realize that the law is also a means of trying to earn salvation, especially for someone like Nicodemus. If we look forward through, uh, through Scripture, we see that Paul, who, who comes from the same background as Nicodemus here, he's a Pharisee, Paul points to true salvation in Jesus. He t points us away from our attempts to, to be better, to do better, be the best versions of ourselves. And he does this in Galatians chapter 2, uh, verses 15 through 20. Uh, and, and we're going to jump around through here, so follow me here. In verse 15, he says this, We ourselves are Jews by birth. He's speaking of him and uh, Peter here. 
are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Jump down to uh, verse 19. He says this, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And we see here that the law is not the means of salvation. Paul says that no one will be justified by the law. In fact, what the law really does is it condemns us. It proves us guilty of sin. It shows us that every single one of us, it's a proof of of Romans chapter uh, 3, we read earlier, all have fallen short. The law gives us these definitions, this expectation that God has of perfection and shows us where we fall short of that. And so while the law condemns, Paul tells us here that it's Jesus, it's the name of Jesus Christ that saves us. It's the only way that we are able to be saved. And if we jump back to John chapter 3 here, we're going to see that it is, in fact, true. You probably have John chapter 3 verse 16 memorized, For God so loved the world... He gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. But John 3.17 is equally important. It says this, For God did not send his his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Verse 16 gives us that gospel, right? We see that Jesus uh, died in our place and we believe in him that, that we'll have eternal life. But verse 17 is important here because it explains how we have the law and we have faith and how those things work together. We see that with, with the law, we stand condemned. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does uh, not believe is condemned already because they're under the law. We see that the world stands condemned already. And so we're left with the question, why does Jesus come into the world at all? And verse 17 told us that the world might be saved through him. And so we see that John is is providing that Jesus is the solution to our sin problem. And that this sin separates us from God. And and we have, in fact, fallen short of God's standard. And we stand condemned, guilty under the law. No matter how hard we strive for this standard that God has set or the standard that we set for ourselves, we are going to fall short. And so this leads us to two questions. The first one is this. Are we willing to recognize that we do, in fact, have a sin problem? The second one is that are you ready to experience freedom from that sin. And maybe you're here today and you're like, no, nah, I'm, I'm doing pretty good. I don't know that I have a sin problem. My, people around me like me. I didn't get mad at rush hour and I didn't swear at my boss today. I'm doing pretty good. I love my wife. Everything's pretty, pretty great. But there, there's a level of honesty that has to be taken in, into this as well. While things can appear great and we might feel like we're doing pretty good, we have to recognize God's standard is perfection. So let me ask you a few quick questions. We'll take a a little self-analysis. You don't have to answer these out loud. Um, But let's talk about this. 
especially maybe uh, in our teenage years, did you ever lie to your parents or disobey your parents, disrespect your parents? Did you ever look lustfully at somebody that you shouldn't have been? Have you ever been jealous of something that somebody else has or envious of them? Have you ever taken the Lord's name in vain? What about idolatry? Is there anything that takes priority in our life over God? Our culture is steeped in idolatry. We have celebrities, we have sports, you name it. We love to have things that fill that position in our life that aren't God. And so these are just six questions, six sins that we can uh, take from God's law. And, And mind you, there are 613 commandments in God's law. And with those six questions, those six uh, commands of God, we can see that everybody in this room, most likely, has fallen short, probably on most of those commands, but hopefully not all at once. We, we are able to see that there is, in fact, sin in our lives. We're able to see that the gospel, that salvation, deliverance, is necessary for every single one of us. And thankfully here, the solution to this is actually rather simple. And God has stepped in with a simple and a free solution to this sin problem. If we look back to the serpent story in Numbers chapter 21, we see that the people rebelled against God. They had sinned. They were dying. They had no hope. And who provided for them? The Lord God did. He told Moses, put that serpent up on the pole And if they look at it, they will be saved. And we can look at Nicodemus, Pharisee, and we can fault him for not understanding what Jesus is telling him here. We can fault him for misunderstanding the gospel. We can fault him for wondering, why I can't can't go back into my mother's womb. It doesn't work like that. And John doesn't really give us any further information. We see Nicodemus pop up a couple of the times, but we don't hear anything about if he believes at any point. But we have to wonder. We have to wonder if this Pharisee who knew the word of God intimately ever put the dots together. When Jesus was scheduled to be crucified, to be lifted up on a tree, did he put the dots together? When Jesus was on his way, carrying that cross to the hill, did he put the dots together? When Jesus had those nails through his feet and his arms, and he was lifted up for all to see, did he ever connect the dots with this conversation in John chapter chapter 3? When Jesus is on the cross, did he put the dots together? And most of us have seen these... We, we might even have some of these. We have a lot of artistic depictions of the crucifixion. And in most cases, Jesus is up there, and his, his head's kind of tilted to one side, and he looks very peaceful. And maybe it's, it's depicting when he's died. Uh, but crucifixion, don't, I mean, don't be deceived here. Cru- crucifixion is a brutal practice. You've got nails through each of your limbs, spikes really, and you essentially suffocate to death. And so while you're up there, You have to push on these nails that are in your limbs to get your arms uh, below your lungs so you can take a breath and then lower yourself back down over and over and over again until you die. And so you have to wonder, as Nicodemus uh, sees or at least hears about this crucifixion of Jesus, 
you have to wonder, did he put the dots together? Because when Jesus was up there on the tree, he probably looked closer to that bronze serpent wrapped around that pole as he was writhing in pain for us. You have to wonder. And so while we can look back to the story of the serpent and see God has delivered his people, we can look forward to the gospel, to Jesus dying in our place, and we can see that uh, these are uh, meant to point to one another, that through trust in Jesus and his death for us in our place, that we can have access to this necessary, simple, and free solution to our sin, pro- sin problem. And it is available to anyone who will believe. If you come to belief in Jesus, there, you need to know Jesus is going to tr- change your life. As we profess this faith in Jesus, we're going to see him turn our our understanding of the world on its head. We're going to see him transform our heart, our motivations, our very actions. And so we're left with the question, do we believe? And if you do, there's really good news because we can have eternal life in the kingdom of God, with God forever, if we believe in the name, uh, the Son of God, Jesus, and are born again. And we can see that we need this solution. It is free and it is a beautiful thing. And for us who have accepted that, we have so much joy to look forward to. So much to respond to Jesus with. I've, I've probably told you before, I, I, know, I know I have, I, I used to work at, at this summer camp. And it's a Christian summer camp, so many of the activities here are, are centered around the gospel. And one of them that is probably the clearest depiction of the gospel is called The Maze. It's just a maze, uh, but you're outdoors, you're, you're doing your, your low ropes activities, which is all ground-based outdoor stuff in the woods, um, like balance beam, uh, group, like team building stuff. And so they get to the maze, and they have to be blindfolded, otherwise the answer is given away. And so they're led into this maze, and they're in the middle of the woods, and there's string connecting tree to tree to tree to tree. And sometimes these strings will cross uh, or, you know, intersect or lead you. You have multiple ways to turn. And it can get kind of confusing. And so all you have to do in the maze is hold your hand under the string. Remember, you're blindfolded. And follow the strings around the woods until you find the exit to the maze. Now, they're also told if at any point the maze is too difficult for you, you can't find the way out, all you have to do is raise up your hand and say, hey, I need help. And the, your, your, uh, the staff members would go and, and take them out of the maze. And so uh, what ends up happening is that slowly, slowly, one hand goes up, another hand goes up, and so on, until there's only one kid left in the maze. And after maybe a half hour, sometimes longer, sometimes shorter, that last kid will finally put his hand up. And when they raise their hand up, we take off their blindfold, and we say, come with me. And we just take them right out of the maze. What they didn't know was that there was no exit to the maze. There was nothing in their own power that they could have done to exit the maze. All they needed to do was say, hey, I need some help here. I can't do this. I need somebody else to step in and solve this problem for me. And it's the same thing with the gospel. Jesus is saying, hey, ask me for help. Trust in me that I will help you. Let me show you the way. 
And so when we get this opportunity to trust in Jesus and his death on the cross for us, for eternal life, then we get to see how the gospel is going to change our life. If we truly believe that Jesus died for us, if we truly believe that God loves us enough to give himself for us, if we truly believe that we have eternal life with God to look forward to, then that's going to change everything about how we live here and now. It's going to change our motivations. It's going to change our very heart. And it's going to be a beautiful thing. And for those of us who have trusted in that, we get this opportunity here to turn to God and worship here. And we get to say, God, thank you. Thank you for loving me enough to give your son for me in my place. Thank you for being merciful time and time again. And if you're here today and this isn't the reality for you, then I would love to talk with you. I'd love to just talk more about how you can have this eternal life with God. And so as we we move towards worship here, I want to read to you this, this quote from Charles Spurgeon. He says this, Justification by faith does not make us think lightly of sin. On the contrary, it creates in, in us such love to God that we loathe the very idea of offending him. For the tendency of the gospel of grace is to excite gratitude in those who receive it. If I am freely pardoned, then I must love him who has thus generously forgiven me. Gratitude is the root of true virtue and the mainspring of all holiness. We're going to turn to God in worship together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, that we can see uh, who Jesus is. We can see that he is, in fact, your son. We can see that he is uh, our savior. God, that, that you would love us enough to allow him to die in our place, to take on a punishment that we deserved. God, we know that without the name of Jesus, we stand condemned. We stand guilty and, and have no hope. But God, by trusting, having faith in what you've done for us, God, that we have so, so much to look forward to in eternity with you. It's for this that we thank you, and it's for the, because of this that we turn to you in praise now. It's in your name we pray. Amen.